And there you have it, the famous organs of James Peter. But hang on, before we get into the show, um, James, I know, you know, your organ piece has become famous, but we've actually recorded another song at the latest company retreat that we finally have edited together. Now, for you listening to this podcast, this next song was put together entirely by the Managed Flitter team. Um, um, the voice is done by Joe, who works in some of the account management and customer service side of things. And um, well, the voice is probably the only part worth talking about. The rest is done by other bits and pieces of the you, team. You feature in there as well. You've got a bit of a bit of a cameo and play the play the keyboard. I play the keyboards, but I actually wrote the song. Yeah. So I'm the you know I'm the Jim Steinman of the you know. Impressive. Uh, um, so anyway, here yeah, have a listen to the song. It's so funky, the it's a monkey, the podcast radio show. A little bit of Twitter, a little bit of chatter on the podcast radio show. Here are our hosts, Kevin and James. Kevin and James. It's a monkey. You have to admit, it's a catchy tune. Mm, I just can't wait for the, the disco remix. The, the Te- techno remix. The dubstep remix. Yeah, the yeah. wah, 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 wah. It's a monkey and so funky. The funny thing is, um, when we were practicing it at the company retreats, the couple of you guys woke up saying, oh my God, that song is stuck in my head. <laughs> it's a bit of a, it's got a bit of a catchy tune. It's definitely, yeah, hope we haven't... Um, haven't uh, entered that into anybody's brains. Can't get no, it out. I hope, I hope we have. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we have. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if we'll change it yet. If you have any um, strong opinion on whether you prefer the old organs or the new song, maybe we'll just, um, maybe we'll mix it up. But anyway, welcome to it. Episode 17 of the It's a Monkey podcast. We have a great show lined up for you. We'll be talking later with Alan Safahi, who is the CEO of ZipZap. There's a company that does all interesting things, payment processing wide. But we will be talking to him about Bitcoin. You may have heard that Bitcoin is all over the press at the moment. There's all sorts of exciting things happening. Bitcoin being the first truly decentralized currency system. Fascinating phenomenon if you're into economics and monetary policy and and everything related to that. So we'll talk with him a little bit later. But first, as usual, we kick off the show with a little bit of tech news. Um, James, it's official that Twitter have bought an Aussie startup. Um, Wasn't us, though. Uh, (laughs) We were hoping for it, but (laughs) no, not us, no. No, yeah. that's, they, they bought um, We Are Hunted. I know you're a huge fan of We Are Hunted. I am. I've actually been using uh, We Are Hunted for, for years. They're a really great uh, music discovery service. Uh, my understanding is that they uh, they kind of crawl the web and social media and they're looking for sort of like trending artists, trending songs. And they're, the main feature that they produce, what they used to produce, was a like an emerging playlist, a chart of emerging artists. And it was really good. So it was kind of like the really new stuff, the things before it kind of hit the top 100 um, and the really popular indie stuff that you just would never get. But it was just like, it was really high quality. Um, yeah, you could always be guaranteed for some really interesting and, uh, and good quality tracks. So yeah, I'm actually quite disappointed that they're they're apparently shutting down. 
um, their Spotify app, which was the way I ended up. Um, I used their website for quite a long time, but then when they rolled out a Spotify app, I started using that as well. Um, and for now, the Spotify app appears to be running, so I'm hoping that they keep that up because um, they shut down the website, but you can still access it that way. But, um, yeah, there's not. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit worried that it's going to go disappear. It will probably reappear um, on Twitter in some some form. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, it sounds like... Um, so what it sounds like uh, the news is today is that they have uh, Twitter have um, given uh, Ryan Seacrest, of all people, uh, mm-hmm. one of the idol judges in the US, uh, access to this new app that they're about to roll out and a chance to play with it. And uh, he's tweeted about it today saying how awesome it was. So yeah, hopefully, I mean, yeah, maybe it'll be even, even, better, even a better experience than... Um, than the old version, but um, if not, there'll be room for someone else to come up with something. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, sometimes you just get these really high quality systems. Like it was almost like this diamond in the rough. So I'm really kind of disappointed actually that they, they took it down because it was such a great service. But um, yeah, well, I wasn't paying for it, so I guess you can't uh, can't complain. I was about g- it, so. I was going to say, were they were they making any revenue? No, not as far as I know. I um, uh, they did have sort of sponsored listings. So I think at the beginning of all of their uh, playlists, they would have like a sponsored track. So they may have been getting some revenue through there, but um, there was no pay model or anything like that. I don't know why I never used it. I mean, my, my biggest, my favorite thing in the world to do is to discover new music. I mean, it's my absolute, you know. Yeah, it's really great. I mean, they didn't really advertise that well, I think was their main problem. Like, they didn't really... I don't think they really... No distribution. Yeah, they didn't really present the core value. Like, I think unless you really used it regularly, you didn't really understand what it was. And to be honest, I, I just knew it was really great music. I didn't even actually understand the way it worked until I started reading all this stuff about that they were actually sort of crawling the web and discovering all this stuff and discovering all these talked about tracks. I almost thought it was like a human curated list because it was just so such good quality. But um, yeah, no, it's a, really, it's a really interesting technology they've got there. So I really hope it, it lives on in some way. Great um, vote of confidence for the Aussie tech startup scene, that uh, Brisbane company um, yeah, being bought by by Twitter. It's a pity that the, the terms aren't disclosed. It would be very interesting to – they might leak out at some stage. Yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah um, but it's a good sign. Yeah, I mean, Twitter, uh, the music and TV seem to be two hot areas that Twitter um, are sort of focusing on, 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 on deepening. Yeah, hopefully um – Look, if, Manish, uh, if Twitter buys us, you know, we, we won't shut down Manish Flutter. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, you know, everything's no got a price, right? <laughs> yeah. There's a the, 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 there's a joke about someone who asks a piano teacher to teach him how to pay Rachmaninov, you know, in an afternoon. And he keeps saying, you know, for a hundred bucks. <laughs> and he goes, no, I can't do it. No, I can't. Eventually the guy says, okay, you know, for a million dollars. And he said, right, let's get started, you know. If you, if you want to keep Manage Flitter alive, you should start buying more pro accounts because exactly. if we get enough money through there, we won't have to sell. So <laughs> if you're worried about it, that's your that's your opportunity. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I think, um, yeah, look, you, you, you never know, but um, we, we, we don't sort of count on that. And um, I guess the value we provide is, uh, you know, I guess um, We Are Hunted was a funded um um, products are funded by Graham Wood, who I think is either from What If, the website What If, 
Yes, it's what if. That's a it's a it's a okay. accommodation website in Australia that's pretty oh, popular. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So he ma- he made he did very well. It's listed. So he IPO'd what if and make it made a lot of money and he's funded that and so they they oh, had cool. a bit of runway. But managed Flitter, you know, we've had to turn revenue from WordGo being bootstrapped, which means that um, we certainly. Um, not not surviving on the hope of an acquisition, which mm. is quite a good position to be in as well. Um, anyway, that's Twitter buying an Aussie startup. We are hunted. Um, worst PC sales drop in history, mm. um, which was interesting. In the last quarter, the PC sales have dropped nearly 14%, which is huge. Mm. It's the worst yearly decline since... IDC began tracking the data in 1994. Mm-hmm. I was reading an interesting piece about it today. I think um, uh, I can't remember. I think it was on the Verge, and they were talking about um, you know how it seems like the the computer market um, is kind of getting to a point where the, the increases in improvements in technology aren't good enough to motivate people to buy computers. Diminishing rate of returns, definitely, yeah, massively, and it's yeah. becoming a bit like the the TV market. Where people will buy, you know, a few thousand dollar device, but then they'll sit in it for ten years or whatever because, you know, the latest technology, like you don't really need a, a TV that's like, you know, a ten percent brighter or whatever yeah. the improvements are. So people tend to sort of sit on their TVs quite a long time until these kind of big revolutionary changes come. Like a lot of people threw out their old televisions when we got, you know, HD TV. Um, but it really takes takes those big improvements to actually see any difference. So yeah, it's not that the it's not that the PC market's going to just die, but it's definitely going to um, decrease. I think there's, it's not going to be at the bottom of its decline. It's a problem with uh, mature mater- mature technologies mm. in general. Yeah, you know, just, it, it just saturates. And it's, it's funny as well because I think um, I was reading that, you know, uh, like a couple of years ago, PC makers were still predicting these huge inclines. Like, you know, they were predicting the market to continue doubling for like 10 years. And it's just crazy. Like you just you just can't predict this stuff. You're never going to know when the market's going to become saturated and when people are going to stop purchasing stuff. Um, but yeah, no, it's a very interesting situation. I mean, it makes sense. You know, if you look at the car market, I mean, cars are essentially a mature technology in many mm. ways. I mean, yeah, they they are. You know, it's always improvements. But the fact that it's such an emotional purchase. Mm. You know, I think keeps the market alive. People get bored of their cars. It's a status symbol, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's one of the reasons why Apple does so well. I mean, Apple sort of matured in its own market now, so they need to reinvent themselves. But I've always wondered, even simple things, I've always wondered why Dell, for instance, doesn't have, why they don't even reinvent the box to look better and the screens to look better and the keyboards to be, you know, mahogany keyboard options. (laughs) Like I've I've always always wondered, to me it's been a very obvious, obvious thing to do is to actually just just on the cosmetics sort of the external side of things and 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 create different price points and so someone who can afford the you know super duper sexy sort of posh keyboard type thing it's it's always it's really confused me why um you, you know someone like michael dell hasn't at least tried that well i mean i think the interesting thing is that they they probably have tried a few times i think the thing is it's just incredibly hard to get right because they've tried um i've got that line of uh really xps computers whatever it is like they try these kind of customizable things and they really do try and create a buzz but it's just it just doesn't happen it's like there's some kind of special magic that some companies like apple have where they can create this kind of 
buzz and desire that just the average company just can't reach. It's just, it must be such such a hard thing. There's, yeah. I, I can't think of many companies other than Apple that can create that kind of personality and um, and desire for the, within their consumers. I think they should partner with, and I know some, you know, pen companies and watch companies partner with, you know, people like Ferrari and Porsche mm. and and or even watch companies and you know that are so good at this sort of luxury end and aspirational mm. type of products i mean a, a few years ago a friend and myself we you know uh, had the idea of of luxury keyboards and mice you know and you know people sit on these things day in day out for you know whatever 10 hours a day now to have something that looks good feels good it's just it makes so much sense to me and if you want to buy a luxury keyboard and mics besides the logitechs and the the microsofts it actually doesn't exist i want like a um a shag carpet like keyboard like <laughs> resting my hands on shag you know, get that feel yeah i think it's i really mean there's cool. a whole there's a whole <laughs> business in, like to me there's a yeah. whole business in it yeah yeah it's interesting you know, yeah. sort of what dr dre has done with headphones you mm, know has sort beats, of just yeah. Um, has has cracked open this market and suddenly you know a few years ago there were only a few headphones and now it's just you know walls and walls full of headphones so i don't know are you interested in that business maybe we can um not much for the physical products I'm yeah, physical a, products yeah. are hard but um i really understand that industry and they're hard to scale and, and yeah. things like that but it's it's something that's very obvious anyway so that's the the pc sales um, which was bound to happen. And, and I think they also, you know, very much on the, the disappointing um, response to Windows 8 as well, which um, has received very mixed reviews. Do you know anyone that uses Windows 8 regularly as part of? No. <laughs> what, do, um, what are the guys that use Windows in-house here? Um, as There's a few that oh, use Windows. Actually, maybe they do. Uh, so it's seven? Actually, no, it's all seven. Yeah, I think everybody uses seven. Yeah, I don't actually know anybody who uses Windows 8. No. Yeah, be interesting yeah. to see what happens with that. Another interesting story, which I found quite interesting, um, about Shodan, the scariest search engine on the internet. So there's been a lot of talk recently about the dark internet. Apparently, you know, Google only indexes, I don't know, 5, 10, 20%, depending who you ask. And this is one of the search engines that reveals everything from you know printers and cameras and um, all the other sort of devices hooked into the internet that shouldn't be open to this degree, but are uh, with people leaving things like default passwords, etc. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting service. It looks like it's essentially um, crawling every kind of computer IP address it can find and storing all of the the responses it receives. And so essentially it's kind of like, just like Google, you know, searches web pages, this service searches computers, essentially. It's just any kind of, or any kind of device that connects to the internet. And, um, and there's nothing necessarily malicious about it, but I can't really think of many uses other than malicious uses, uses for it. Um, because as soon as you have this huge database, if you have some common exploits, like common passwords or certain things that appear in the, the responses from the dev these devices, you can just search for them and, um, and discover them. Well, I guess the reason is to find, you know, for people to search for open things and close them, almost. Uh, legitimate use, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because it definitely opens up ideas like, you know, 
in theory, if you have this kind of database, well, now that we do, you can in theory, you know, search within Google and you can find, you know, devices that are that are open and connected to the internet, you know, and it doesn't have, to, uh, it might have been things that people overlooked, like not necessarily the computers, but it could be like the refrigerators and the toasters and anything that's connected to the internet. Well, in this article, they give some examples. Um, let's so Shodan searches have found control systems for a water park, a gas station, a hotel wine cooler, and a crematorium. Okay. Cybersecurity researchers even located command and control systems for nuclear power plants. I mean, I'd love to verify that and see if that's <laughs> really... I mean, come on. Well, they might have located them, but that doesn't mean they've exploited them, which is quite different. And a particle accelerating cyclotron by using Shodan. I mean, you would imagine a nuclear power plant would have nothing connected to any network anywhere. Uh, I mean, it is it is possible that it'd be connected. I mean, I guess there is. I guess it is a point. I mean, you know, with any kind of infrastructure, you do have a certain amount of um, uh, security through um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You not being able to discover it. There's a phrase for it. Anyway, Non-discoverable. Um, security through obscurity, security through obscurity. Right. Um, so you should never rely on this, but there's obviously it's sort of, it's almost like a, you know it's something you can um, uh, you know always fall back on to a certain degree. Like at least even though you should secure all your individual services, it's still actually quite hard to discover those services. So if you have an engine like this that discovers any kind of you know service available, then it definitely reduces the. Um, the obscurity of a lot of these things. So, um, you know, the hardest part of... If you did want to take down the nuclear power station, the hardest part of the the problem might be to actually discover where the control systems are. So, Hey, I'm happy for them to take down the nuclear power station. <laughs> I'm worried about them cranking things up in the nuclear power station. <laughs> yeah, um, in a talk given at last year's DEF CON Cybersecurity Conference, independent security penetration tester demonstrated how you showed him to find control systems for evaporative coolers, pressurized water heaters, and garage doors. He found a car wash that could be turned on and off and a hockey rink in Denmark that could be defrosted with a click of a button. A city's entire traffic control system was connected to the internet and could be put into test mode with a single command entry. And he also found a control system for a hydroelectric plant in France with two turbines generating three megawatts each. Um, look, I mean, this stuff is obviously harder than it seems to hack. I mean, it, that hasn't happened in, you know, there's always talk of shutting down city systems and, you know, water supplies. I'm not to say that it can't happen, but it is, it's obviously harder to really, you know, crack these things. Look, I mean, what, what tends to happen is you can certainly find these things in isolation. And I think the reason why this stuff seems interesting is because you think of it in terms of an escalation. So you think of like, oh, if you can discover like one turbine, then maybe you can discover like every turbine across the US. Well, the reality is, is that even though you can discover one, you're not going to be able to discover all of them. So it's very hard to have like a, a synchronized, simultaneous attack on a single area. You might be able to discover one or two things across the US but you know it's going to be geographically isolated most of the time people involved are probably going to fix stuff very quickly it's not going to get reported so you're never going to notice this stuff happens um, and the overall disruption is going to be really minimal because it is geographically distributed so um, it's, it's obviously a risk but it's not it's not a doomsday type risk that I think uh, you know people in the media tend to extrapolate it to 
I think the problem with hacking as opposed to sort of traditional attacks is just just the leverage. You know, it's just mm. with technology you can you can leave us so strongly. You know, as opposed to you know, heaven forbid, you know, hijacking one plane, you, you know, crashing the air traffic control system, or just put you know feeding through wrong data. Is just you, you're leveraging there in a way that's that's yeah. that's factors of magnitude, and I think that's what that's what scares people. Yeah, but um, yeah, I would uh, look. We're creating a complex world, you know. So I read an article recently about the you know the the threat of uh, robot wars, where robots will be fighting robots type thing. Oh yeah, yeah, you know? it's coming. Yeah, <laughs> it's coming, and um, and all the drone story and. Uh, yeah, the future. Anyway, you're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter. We are the co-founders of a company called 89N, which is the home of Manage Flitter. Speaking of which, we hit 1.5 million Manage Flitter users this week, which yep. is a terrific milestone, which we are very proud of. Um, we even recorded a, a uh, we had uh, a drink celebration and we recorded a little video. If you hop onto the Manage Flitter Facebook page or Twitter page, you'll see a link to the Vine video. It's pretty entertaining. You can see James was really <laughs> into the party. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah, enjoying myself there. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll put, you know what, I'll put a link on the show notes. And by the way, if you are listening on iTunes, um, hop on to itsamonkey.com and leave us a comment on the site there. We love receiving your comments. You can also tweet us at Monkey Podcast. You can also email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. Um, after the break, we are going to be talking to Alan Safahi about Bitcoin. So stay with us. The It's a Monkey Podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images. All with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error free. You're back with the It's a Monkey podcast. You are listening to Kevin Garber co-founder and CEO of 89N, home of Managed Flitter, and we put together a regular podcast covering all things relating to the tech economy. Now, if you follow all the blogs, whether it's uh, Read, Write, Web, TechCrunch, um, all things digital, you'll notice that there have been a lot of articles about a digital currency called Bitcoin that have been uh, popping up more and more frequently. So I thought we'd get us... Um, someone on the show who, who works in the space, has a startup in the space, to just uh, talk through some of these issues around Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin? What exactly is going on? So I'm happy to introduce at the end of my Skype line, um, Alan Safahi, who is the founder and CEO of ZipZap in San Francisco in Ground Central for all the tech uh, activity. ZipZap is a global cash transaction network enabling consumers to use cash offline to pay for transactions online. Alan, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Kevin. Good to be here. Alan, let's just take one step back. Uh, Bitcoin, where does it come from? What is it? Bitcoin is a digital currency. It was created back in uh, 2009, I think, um, when it started to get popular. And it's really not backed by any 
government or any central banks. It's a peer-to-peer -peer network. So you can say, I guess it, uh, it just kind of uh, came about uh, from thin air. You know, there's, there's no uh, you know, central place that issues it. But, but it is um, you know, one that's uh, you know, through a network of uh, companies and people that are tied into a network through Bitcoin, uh, they're able to issue um, and authenticate and process the transactions. So just, just to pause on that point there, I mean, this is a significant... Uh, difference in that it is the first decentralized currency that has taken off, it is my understanding. That is correct, yes. Um, generally speaking, um, in, the, in the past, uh, people would only trust the currency that was issued by a government or a central bank. And, uh, but in the you know, recent years, um, you know, uh, open source has become more popular among you know, a lot of technologists and so people are more open to having the concept of a, a currency that's not tied into a central government. And in reality, they're even more interested in that than they are in a, in a fiat currency that's issued by a bank. Uh, just because there's the, when it's a decentralized currency, there's, not a lot of, there's no opportunity for government to meddle with it and to debase the value of the currency by issuing more and more of it, as we've seen happening with the most of the other currencies in the world. And one of the reasons that Bitcoin has gotten visibility recently is this whole Cyprus um, um, economic crunch that, that has almost seen Bitcoin as, a, as ironically, as, as, as a safe haven for money because it isn't backed by, um, I, I guess, a sovereign nation. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, the, the general concern before Cyprus was that the banking system is broken um, you know, but the actions of the government in Cyprus uh, attempting to reach into people's bank account and taking, you know, a chunk of their savings, that really validated the, the fears that people had about banks and um, about, you know, government entities. So this kind of led to uh, adding more fuel to the fire. But Bitcoin was already on the rise even before Cyprus crisis. So, now, let, now, let me just ask you, you know, it's all fair and well if, if we're slightly distrustful of governments, which is probably a good thing. Mm -hmm. But if Bitcoin is decentralized, I mean, what type of regulation or accountability is there in terms of, um, you, you know, things going wrong and, and making sure that, um, you know, there's, the, you know, um, organized crime doesn't take advantage of it? How is all of that, where, where do all the checks and balances come from? That's a good question. I think, um, you know, up to a couple of weeks ago, there were some concerns that, you know, Bitcoin may actually be illegal. There were people that weren't sure because, you know, in the U.S., you, you know, only central government can, uh, only Congress can mint coins. So there was some concern about whether or not getting involved with Bitcoins would be uh, a legal act. And uh, Treasury Department's... Um, FinCEN division, uh, recent, the network recently passed the guidance or rulings stating that virtual currencies that are decentralized are in fact legal and that you're allowed to, you know, to buy them, to, uh, you know, spend them, to sell them. But the only caveat is if you sell Bitcoins uh, as the exchanges do, then you need to be registered with FinCEN, which is the... Uh, financial, um, you know, crime net network. Um, so that's a divisional treasury department. So 
that's the first step in regulating uh, something that you, as you mentioned correctly, could get out of hand. And a lot of us in the industry are really, you know, relieved with that. And I think that actually had um, an unintended consequence of helping propel the value of Bitcoin much higher uh, because uh, there's clarity. You know, when there's clarity about government's action, people now can trust that, hey, you know, we're not going to go to jail by buying Bitcoins. So there are a lot more people coming into the market and a lot more people buying a lot more Bitcoins. I think um, uh, none of us involved in the Bitcoin that are, you know, legitimate want to see it go down because of some illegal activities that people are doing with illegal trafficking or terrorism or um, anything like that. So we're really um, happy to see some form of government uh, regulation. Obviously, we don't want it to be centrally, you know, government by, you know, controlled, but, but we like to see some kind of guidance and ruling um, much in the same way you like, you, you see the internet, you know, in the early days, it was a little bit, you know, out, out of hand, there was a lot of porn and gambling, but over the years, uh, you know, a lot more um, mainstream and legitimate transactions have happened on the internet. So, um, you know, and it's been helping, you know, government has been kind of helping regulate it to some degree, uh, but it's mostly self-regulated by the industry. But surely, I mean, organized crime is always at the cutting edge of technology. Um, surely, it, it's, at the moment, they're, they're onto the Bitcoin and the sort of darker sides of the internet and drugs and, and money laundering. I mean, is it not an existing problem on Bitcoin already? Um, you know, there is, uh, if you want to use Bitcoins for illegal activities, there, I suppose there are ways to do that, just like there are ways to do it with cash. Companies like ZipZap um, that are legitimately involved with Bitcoin processing um, and transactions, what we do is uh, we do full compliance with, you know, anti-money laundering laws, with KYC, know your customer rules, with OFAC. We um, basically, we deter those type of illegal activities by asking a lot of questions from the customers when they register with, uh, with one of our exchanges. We require them to ask a lot of questions to authenticate and validate the customer. And then we also do our own velocity checks to make sure people cannot uh, go over certain dollar limits every day or per transaction. And we monitor um, all of these controls to make sure that, um, you know, that uh, we weed out those people that are going to be using it for illegal purposes. Because if you're using Bitcoin for illegal trafficking of drugs or whatever, you're not, you don't want to provide your real name and information. So that's how a lot of these guys get weeded out. And eventually will go away as more and more exchanges become registered and have to follow the same kind of regulations and compliance that we do currently. Now, Alan, is Bitcoin, I mean, is it, you know, mostly useful as a speculative currency just as some other currencies or is there, you know, pragmatic utility in it? I know that um, I'm reading Paul Krugman, who's a, who's a very well-known um, economist, um, has been quoted, I mean, this was a little while back in 2011, but he says, um, Bitcoin has fluctuated sharp, sharply, but overall it has soared. So buying into Bitcoin has at least so far been a good investment. But does that make the experiment a success? No. What we want from a monetary system isn't to make people holding money rich. We want to facilitate transactions and make the economy as a whole rich. And that's not at all what is happening in Bitcoin. I think Paul is correct. Um, I... Um I believe there are two um, 
forces uh, you know, related to Bitcoin that are kind of at odds with each other. Uh, there's a commodity aspect of Bitcoin, which stems from the fact that there's a limited supply you know, there, by design. There are only 21 million Bitcoins allowed to be issued ever, and there are currently 11 million of them in the circulation. So the, the limited supply aspect of Bitcoin will make it a commodity. <laughs> why, but, why, why was the limited um, supply chosen? Is that to, to not be inflationary? That's correct. That's exactly why it was chosen. And, and that drives a value higher because of, you know, just like any other commodity, if there's a limited supply, then, uh, you know, and there's demand, then the price goes up. However, I think that's, as we've seen in recent weeks and months, the, the value of uh, Bitcoins have gone so high that um, it's counter, uh, you know, productive to its value as a currency because people are not going to want to sell their Bitcoins. They want to sit on it and let it ride and grow in value. So, so it kills some liquidity in the market, exactly. so to speak. So I think what's going to happen is uh, there will be some adjustments, you know, as in any other uh, speculative investment. There is going to be some corrections and there will be some testing of lows and highs. And at, at one point, we hope that uh, the pricing would stabilize. And I think uh, one of the main factors that I, uh, you know, look for, one of the signals I look for, for Bitcoin entering the mainstream is the fact that, uh, you know, uh, the currency has become, uh, you know, the value of Bitcoin has become stabilized. Because until that happens, you're right, and Paul is right, it's not going to have a lot of value as a currency. I, uh, I really like his point. Um, we want to facilitate transactions that make the economy as a whole rich. And I, and, and I almost find it quite exciting that, uh, that if something like a decentralized currency um, could really add a layer of value and efficiency to the economy, then it's, then it's quite a quite a significant, uh, you, you know, impact. Yeah. So, you know, uh, up, let me give you a couple of uh, things, a uh, couple of pointers uh, that I've learned recently. One is uh, venture capital money is floating into Bitcoin in the, you know, right now because uh, up to now, up to a couple of few months ago, VCs were not interested in any market, uh, you know, and they were not interested in Bitcoin because it wasn't large enough. But when Bitcoin values reached the market cap reached a billion dollars and surpassed it, then the VCs started paying attention. And now, now that value you're talking about is that transactions through Bitcoin. I'm talking about the total value. If you have 11 million... Or the market cap of... of market cap, yeah. Right. So you got 11 million Bitcoins out there and they're about a couple of hundred dollars a piece or whatever. That's... Right. Uh, that's a $2 billion value, you know, market cap. And right. that means that the market is large enough for VCs to play in. And that means there will be a lot of innovations that will then further enhance the value of Bitcoins, such as making it easier for consumers to, you know, buy and sell Bitcoins. It's very difficult today. So ease of use is one of those things. Um, the value has gotten high enough and the media has paid enough attention that the consumer awareness is going, you know, uh, it's getting a lot higher. And I think that's another pillar of, uh, you know, uh, a signal to watch for, for, um, you know, Bitcoin reaching mainstream status is to say, you know, if it reaches 95% or more consumer awareness, kind of like gift cards do, you know, then, then you know that uh, it's, it's in the mainstream. So uh, I believe that, uh, you know, the, even though we don't like this, uh, rapid rise in valuation on um, 
on bitcoins and um, you know I think it would be it would have been nicer if it had a slower growth but it has helped uh, the consumer awareness it helped increase the market cap so there's more money coming into uh, the market and also I think retailers the e-merchants are going to be paying a lot of more attention so you will see soon some of the top 500 e-merchants accepting bitcoins as a method of payment you know today there are only a few thousand merchants accepting bitcoin as a method of payment and maybe the largest ones are um, you know reddit or uh, you know wordpress but i think uh, uh, there are a lot more major retailers looking at this closely because why wouldn't they i mean there are millions of people out there holding billions of dollars in bitcoins uh, they seem like a target for the retailers to reach out to <laughs> One of the things we're doing at ZipZap, you know, in the next few weeks, we're going to be announcing, um, you know, we're going to be selling gift cards from major retailers on our site. Uh, and we accept either cash or Bitcoin as a method of payment. So if you have a lot of Bitcoins and you want to cash out, you can use them to buy gift cards from uh, major retailers that, you know, we'll announce in a couple of weeks. Alan, why aren't the governments more worried about this? I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in monetary policy and fiscal policy, but I, I would imagine a decentralized currency um, could bring up all sorts of problems, not only from which we've discussed already, the criminal perspective, but I, I mean, the currency and being, yeah, um, you know, the only generator of currency gives them a very strong sense of control and predictability and monetary policy. I'm Almost intrigued that the government has has been so open and accepting to Bitcoin. Well, I think they are paying attention now with this guidance that we had uh, a couple of weeks ago. That's the start. There will be a lot more, um, you know, uh, clarity, you know, in the coming months. Additional rulings. Uh, you have to put things in perspective. You know, even though um, the value of you know market cap is around a couple of billion bucks right now, but uh, but you look at the total value of any kind of um, uh, currency trades every day, it's more than $4 trillion. So Bitcoin is a very, very small drop in a very big ocean when it comes to currency. Um, of course, as it gets bigger, I mean, you know, it gets into hundreds of billions of dollars of trade and transaction values, it becomes more and more on the radar of the government entities. But uh, the thing is, this is a global phenomena. It's not that easy to tame this thing. It's like trying to tame internet. Um, you know, a lot of countries have tried, <laughs> but they can't. Um, you know, we saw how Twitter makes impacts in the, you know, in the Arab world, you know, when they had the Arab Spring. Uh, we see that Facebook and, you know, other social media are not really, um, you know, being uh, controlled as tightly in China and other countries like North Korea. So there are people that have access to uh, the internet and they're always going to be utilizing this and just uh, making it illegal doesn't make it go away. I, th I think the government is doing the right thing by, uh, you know, trying to regulate it at the kind of at the outskirts and uh, as it gets bigger, they're going to, I'm sure, step in and do a lot more. And that's a good thing, to be honest. Um, I'm not one of those that believes that it should be totally anonymous. I don't believe in just anonymous payments for all the reasons you mentioned, you know, and, you know, all these uh, crime, you know, uh, syndicates and, um, you know, other illegal activities that we don't want to be associated with. Alan, tell us a little bit more about your uh, startup, if it's fair to call it a startup, ZipZap. Um, you're, sure. the, you're the founder. 
of ZipZap. Um, tell us, uh, you've mentioned briefly what you guys cover, but it seems like quite an the payment space I find particularly interesting in myself. But So tell us, um, yeah, um, why your interest in the space and what you guys are up to and what some traction you guys have had to date. Sure. We are, um, you know, we are a San Francisco startup. We are VC backed. Uh, we launched last year in January, um, have uh, grown very rapidly. Um, our, I guess uh, our network is currently about 700,000 locations in U.S., Brazil, Russia, and a few other countries. We're expanding in the Middle East and Europe and Asia by the end of the year. So we'll be at millions of locations where you can go shop online or you can top up your e-wallet or prepaid card and pay cash offline at one of our um, retail partners. Uh, we've grown rapidly because of a number of factors. One is uh, our management team comes from the payments background, you know, all 20 to 30 years of experience in the payments processing, whether it's uh, from MasterCard, you know, Western Union, you know, Wells Fargo, B of A, and, uh, and alike. So, so we, uh, I put together a team that I'm very proud of uh, with a lot of experience, and we have good relationships with partners like uh, MoneyGram and um, other money transfer companies and banks around the world. And through those relationships, we were able to build a network as uh, the largest cash network. And we've kind of positioned our company as a gateway for any online financial services or e-commerce. So uh, whether you have a virtual bank or you have an e-wallet, or you want to buy some bitcoins online from an exchange, or you want to buy any kind of uh, currency online uh, from any of the FX sites, uh, we hope to become the gateway for cash customers um, that wish to do those kind of transactions online. And you know, as you know, outside the U.S. and you know maybe Australia and some of the Western world countries, most of these other countries um, are cash economies. You know, in countries like Brazil and Russia. You have 80 to 85 percent of consumers that use cash uh, to complete the online transactions. So um, you know they're used to do, doing that. We're just kind of helping them in a, to do this on a global scale. No, it's very interesting. I'm not sure how much you know about um, Australia's banking system and the online payment processing options in Australia, but it's a you know in one aspect we've got a very stable, good banking system, but it's not all that competitive. And as a startup owner in, in Australia, we are very limited by uh, payment gateway and payment processes options um, in Australia. And um, I, wish, I, w I wish someone would come in. Uh, we, we have had companies like Braintree and, and uh, you know, there's rumors of Stripe coming in. But it's, um, the lack of competition in Australia really hits the, yeah. the, the, the sort of banking slash payment processing side of things. Yeah, I've heard that. I think you guys have four major banks and they control the market and it's very tough um, you know, to innovate when you have that kind of um, you know, control. I think in other countries I've seen like Brazil, they have a handful of banks that control majority of their payment processing and the rates are really high. Um, it takes, um, it costs three or four times more than in the US and it takes much, much longer to get paid <laughs> when, when you do accept credit card transactions. In the U.S., you know, we're used to getting paid the next day, and in Brazil, it could take up to a month, month and a half to get paid. Yeah. yeah. So that's all unfortunate. I think part of the reason that people are interested in alternate payments like cash payment or Bitcoin is that you know banks haven't been really treating their customers right. I think 
Uh, you know, it's almost that's a bit of an understatement. <laughs> yeah. They're worse than airlines, right? Because they're they're taking money, and then they're telling them how they can spend it, or where they can spend it, or how much they can spend it at, and and you know, it's just people are fed up with that. You know, and now with what happened in Cyprus, they see that, but you know, central banks can just come in and grab your, you know, savings account out of your government, uh, you know, guaranteed accounts. <laughs> Uh, people are uh, are just not on, not very happy. And when I started ZipZap um, a couple of years ago, the idea was to really make it consumer uh, centric. You know, we are we see everything through the eyes of the consumer. We want to make life easier for them. Get rid of the friction. Get rid of all the extra costs that don't need to be there, and make life easier for them. So, um, you know, sometimes uh, that runs uh, against the the you know the norm when it comes to banking or financial services and you know we have to make adjustments you know just to you know like you know we have to comply with KYC and AML and OFAC all of these Patriot all this compliance which is fine but we find that 99.99% of the consumers are you know are honest they, they just want to you know use their own funds to buy things online and we need to remove those frictions to let them do that easily and, so, I think, and I think the internet, that's certainly where it shines, as is, is I often think, is the internet is just this great enabler of, uh, you, you know, lubricating markets, you know, whether it's anything from online dating to collaborative consumption to, you know, social media networks. It's essentially just fantastic at reducing friction in all sorts of markets. And the exciting thing is there's all sorts of markets, quote unquote, that still, uh, still have a lot of friction in them. Exactly. It's the ultimate equalizer. <laughs> it's exciting times. Alan Safahi, the CEO and founder of ZipZap, really appreciate it. It's, uh, I'm pretty sure we might be reaching out to you in the future about Bitcoin because I think it's only the beginning and we'd, we'd love your comments on any developments. Thank you. I enjoyed my time and thank you very much uh, for the opportunity. Have a great day. Thanks, Alan. Goodbye. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by ManageFlitter. With ManageFlitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. Bitcoin, James, it's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, yeah. It's a very, uh, it's a very interesting one to keep your eye on. Yeah, um, I'm fascinated by um, you know monetary systems and barter systems and and the value, the exchange of value. So I find I find Bitcoin, you know, really quite interesting as um, a non-government backed type of exchange of value. Mm. Um, really interesting to see how it will evolve. And I think, as usual with the internet, people are going to really surprise us. With how they implement and execute and what the what they do with this thing yeah i mean it's look i mean it's it's very it's very early days it's hard to know how how successful it will be i mean you know if it is successful it will it will have probably quite a quite a big impact i mean it's probably um you know there's there's lots of things the internet has disrupted um the financial services system is probably being fairly isolated up till now but, um, you know, in theory, a service like this could actually, if it is successful and becomes, you know, a dominant force in world trade, 
um, you know, it really could open some interesting doors having this kind of unregulated uh, monetary exchange. Um, yeah, it could, yeah, could really change the way the way things happen in terms of the way people pay for products and um, and the way sort of financial traces happen. Um, yeah, it definitely opens some some interesting and potentially scary doors. I think. I mean, it introduces another layer of risk into the system in a way because you've got. You know, if you're dealing, you're essentially dealing with two currencies, I guess, your home yeah. currency and, and another currency. So it does actually introduce another layer of risk into the system, which I would imagine governments, I mean, governments in a way are trying to de-risk the everyday person's life financially in a way, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it is a good point. I mean, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily see the value to the average person unless they're trying to do something illegal <laughs> because you know it gives you a non um anonym anonymity um i didn't still pronounce that word right today. <laughs> <You're> almost, <laughs> almost got it anonymity anonymity okay. <laughs> um so there's, de- there's there's probably that angle but definitely for the majority of purchases i don't um i don't know what 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 value it adds um um well that's the one economist said that i quoted from you know he says is if it's if if something like this is, um, you know, improving the utility of one person only or a small group of people, then it's it's, it's useless. But if it if, if if it improves the quality, you know, if it adds value across the whole of society, then then it's then it's strong stuff. Yeah, I mean, I guess the most compelling argument is that um, you know it's just going to disrupt the existing payment providers like. Um, you know, the big credit card companies like, you know, MasterCard and Visa, you know, they always have this kind of um, stranglehold on particularly on online commerce where they're, you know, where they're taking their cut, the bank is taking the cut, you know, everywhere along the line on the existing payment process, somebody's taking a cut. Whereas if you're, you know, reinventing the whole monetary system from the ground up, then um, you can really, you know, get rid of every stage of those, those, those cuts and it becomes a whole lot cheaper to actually, you know, do perform transactions and you know if it's going to be a lot cheaper for you know for you to pay for something in one currency compared to another then you know that could be a strong motivating force for people to actually move across to using that currency and i suppose if 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 something like physical shops land up being able to accept this currency hmm. if it becomes more dominant well, than your well home currency can. well they can i mean they, you can already do it i mean there are definitely some services doing it like wordpress um, already online um, you know big fairly reputable companies um uh yeah i mean the hardest part is to it's still not easy to do this stuff it's doable but it's not easy but it will get easier it'll definitely get easier there have already been some horror stories though already of people not being able to cash cash in i think there was an australian Mm. exchange that um they haven't honored something Uh, i didn't quite read the entire story yeah look i mean it's still because it's still early days and there's so many sort of you know, you've got to build up a certain layer of credibility as well in terms of being an exchange or like a shop. It's kind of, I guess, like the early days of the internet, when, pardon me, where there were like, you know, whenever you, there was this kind of huge barrier to people putting in their credit cards online because there were so many people scamming it and there was so much, uh, it was so difficult to tell if something was a credible place in order to actually put in your payment information. Whereas I think, um, you know, so such early days with these kind of exchanges, there's no kind of sort of infrastructure or trust built up. So you really are flying blind at this point if you are trying to put money into the Bitcoin system. 
but um, that I mean that that will change. I mean, it's like the the Mt. Gox thing. You know, they are they're currently processing like eighty percent of the of the Bitcoin payments, and you can kind of trust them. You know, just because they're so big. So there are sources that you can go to and, and trust. How hard will it be for us to um, allow Bitcoin? Payments on managed Flutter? I don't think it's that hard. I, mean, I haven't actually looked into the technical problems and issues that go in, but in theory, there's no there's no barriers to doing it. It's doable. There's nothing that would stop us. I mean, it's it's been hard enough for us to accept US dollars here <laughs> in Australia, so it can't be. <laughs> We've got enough, enough issues there. To <laughs> yeah, can't even accept uh, yeah American dollars, let alone Bitcoin. So. And I think... Um, yeah, the credibility is obviously, and that's why this whole Cyprus thing. I mean, when a when a financial system loses credibility, you know, it's um, yeah. I mean, I've got a friend who who's um, lives in Cyprus, and I mean, they're really depressed about the outlook there, and they've mm. lost such faith in the leaders, and it's just um, you know, it means such a run on the banks, and the fact that the the banks just pillaging the savings and things like that, you know, where it it, it does become absolutely meaningless, you know. Yeah, it would be very hard to hard kind of place to live and I think also people you know it does demonstrate that you know we kind of have this sort of faith that our currency is going to stay strong and that you know it's going to mean the same thing tomorrow that it means today but there you know there's certainly cases where you look at you know Cyprus and it can all just fall out onto your feet and you know the things you thought you have you don't necessarily have and you know these online services like Bitcoin you know even though they're very volatile and speculative you know in some ways you know they are more risky than currency, but they're probably not as risky as people might expect compared to, you know, just, just I think, average dollar. So. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a good point that people don't realize how fragile the entire system is. I think I think governments do. I think governments yeah. do realize. And I think that's why when the GFC happened, the first thing the Australian government came out was guaranteeing savings up to a certain mm. point and, you know, kicking all this because they know that if, if the system panics then it's all over type yep. thing, yep. you know, and I think governments are always scared of panic. They mm. know that panic is definitely, that's when, you know, people become very, very animalistic and strange and, and the whole system breaks down. So I think the, fra- the system is very fragile and it's, there is no intrinsic. I mean, I think originally, I, I mean, it's supposed to be backed by gold, our currency, and there's oh, all of, it? yeah, there's all of that side of things. So, or... I don't think I don't think it was. Was it still? I th- I think it is. Oh, okay. I think that's the whole sort of reductionist approach to the currency that oh, in okay. that in theory. Yeah. Um, and I learned all the stuff at uni. It's sort of <laughs> like um, I thought. I thought it used to be, but then that was the gold standard. Yeah, yeah. but I thought and that was. But I still ages think ages ago got rid of because they just didn't have enough gold to to do it. So it just doesn't mean anything anymore. I, th- I still think the currency might ultimately be backed by gold, but mm. there's something in Australia. Yeah, there's something in Australia that there's some kind of back. Yeah, there is something that's a bit different. Yeah, I can't remember what it is, but yeah, and that's what's given gold its special status. And mm. I don't know. It's all it's all a convoluted sort of construct that somehow, thankfully, holds together. But look, people have been tra- been trading forever, you know. Yeah. And it's just an exchange of value. Like I think people sort of project a lot of intrinsic magic powers onto money, mm. but it's uh, you know if World War Three happened and we had to go back to exchanging, you know, exchange would 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 still happen. Yeah, I mean, prisoners create their own currencies. Yeah, yeah. You know, out of all sorts of yeah. all sorts of things. Um, anyway, it's Friday the twelfth of April um, in Sydney, Australia. It's been episode 17 of the monkey podcast um in episode 18 we're probably going to be talking about all things mobile 
um, moving away a little bit from the philosophical, esoteric, economic systems. Um, please email us. Please tweet us. I know some of you have tweeted us. Thank you very much. Please spread the word. We love doing this podcast for you, and the more that listen to it, the better. And um, if you have any suggestions for guests, etc., let us know. And um, thanks for listening from Kevin and James. Have a good one. <laughs>